Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week even, paleontology. It's STEM for those of us who legit had a magnifying glass in the toy box. Absolutely obsessed with that thing. Could not see a thing out of it, smeared with (laughs) fingerprints. (laughs) I still have one. Really? What do you use it to look at? Not much. (laughs) (laughs) Too many fingerprints, right? Yeah. Same. I read a headline that I loved, which combined my devotion to animals (laughs) and also interest in archaeology. There was a headline from the BBC uh, that said, Skokholm Island prehistoric tool found down the rabbit hole. Whoa, wait a minute. Where is Skokholm Island? It is off the coast of Wales, but it has an old Norse name, which is why when I read it, I read Stockholm, but it's actually Skokholm. And... So it turns out that these rabbits who were making a burrow on Skokholm Island dug up two Stone Age tools as well as an early Bronze Age pottery shard. Ooh. Yes. So they identified um, a Mesolithic beveled pebble that was likely used to make sealskin clad boats or prepare shellfish. Wow. Oh, prepare shellfish. I love it. Okay, cookout. (laughs) How about you? Well, I saw a really cool news story um, Mm -hmm. about a 17-year-old named Deja Taylor who invented a new type of suture. You know, a suture is basically what you use to close a wound after surgery. um, And it changes color to show if the wound is infected. Yes. I saw this news article, too. You saw this? Yes, I know. Raven Raven Baxter, a.k.a. Raven the Science Maven, who we have interviewed on this show, tweeted about it. Lots of people have. And I was like, that is so cool. So basically, for people who haven't looked up Deja's work, basically the way it works is she took uh, regular sutures uh, and wanted to figure out a way to determine when there's an infection. She realized that human skin is normally slightly more acidic. And Mm. when there's an infection in a wound, it generally turns more alkaline. So she looked for things that would change color when they hit a certain pH. And she realized that a lot of natural vegetables um, change color at a certain pH beet stew. So she dyed the suture thread with beet juice and it starts off being really 
you know, bright red and it turns to a more of a purpley slash gray color if the pH is raised. I mean, she's brilliant. I'm just so in awe of someone that young coming up with such an insight and innovation. And I love that it also included um, beats. I mean, (laughs) that astounded me when I read it. The way you said that, though, it made it seem like this show was sponsored by like Big Beats or something. <laughs> like we were. I'll take it. Our sponsor, Big Beats. Beats. You want to sponsor the show? Beats when you want to root vegetable. Beats. <laughs> okay. Well, we have a very, very special guest during story time. I feel like you should introduce our special guest. Our special guest is my former co-star and current friend, Ken Jung, and he'll be here to help us share the story about what lies at the center of the earth. I love the way you said that. Oh, that's so much <laughs> to look forward to. And we're also talking to Jingmei O'Connor. She's a paleontologist that studies the relationship between modern-day birds and dinosaurs. Uh, and actually, and we're going to get to this during the interview, birds are dinosaurs. So we're going to talk about their physiological connections a little bit later. Right. I've been telling everyone I meet since we recorded this interview that birds are dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> Regardless. Post yeah. Birds are dinosaurs. All right. Let's check it out. Let's get to our interview with Dr. Jingmei O'Connor. So... Your mom is also a researcher studying the natural world. Did she ever take you to work with her? She did. Um, she's a geochemist. So the labs that she has like, a lot more cool chemicals and things than like the labs that I work in. But she would give us like <laughs> little blow torches and, uh, and like glass, like these glass. Um, I don't know what they're kind of like a, just like, yeah, like a stick of glass. And you'd like, you know, heat it up and then you twist it and make cool patterns, you know. That, and that was all fun and dandy uh, until I accidentally burned my little sister. And then we weren't allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> and she would also give us cups of liquid nitrogen and we would, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like put like bananas in it. And then you have like frozen banana. That's so fun. <laughs> and uh, basically we were the bane of the geology department. Like they hated us. They hated my mom because she was just like, I'm not trying to socialize. I'm just trying to get my PhD. And like, I'm older and you know so she didn't fit in and then she also brought with her like these awful kids who are like running around shrieking and breaking things and uh yeah but uh but yeah it was a really a formative experience and seeing my mom you know it it was mostly her taking us into the field that got me really Mm. interested into geology but I Mm. I, yeah I didn't know what aspect of geology excited me and uh, and then I figured that out in college so you know most paleontologists you'll talk to will will be like I like dinosaurs since I was three, four, five, whatever. But I am like one of the the few who found paleontology very late in life. Mm. Well, it's interesting you say that uh, so many paleontologists say that they liked dinosaurs growing up because it's a much broader field than sometimes we think of. I think sometimes I think of just dinosaurs when I hear paleontologists. Can you tell us about what else the field encompasses? Well, paleontology in Greek basically means the study of ancient life. So it's Hmm. everything from the earliest cyanobacteria, you know, that we have like 3.5 billion years ago, uh, all the way up to things like La Brea tar pits, which are very recent and coexisted even with like earliest humans. So it's just anything ancient life. And uh, dinosaurs are the most charismatic of these creatures, but also like saber-toothed cats. Also, you know, very charismatic, very popular. Woolly mammoths, these are also things that people get excited about. Also, you know, other 
extinct uh, mesozoic reptiles like pterosaurs or plesiosaurs that usually get commercially lumped in with dinosaurs, but they're not dinosaurs. <laughs> they are reptiles, so they are part. They together are part of a more inclusive group, but uh, but not dinosaurs. We need to make that clear. And uh, yeah, so it's anything, you know, like it's any form of life. And I always say that I'm a, an equal opportunity, uh, extinct life, like enthusiast, you know, um, <laughs> I, you know, I have a trilobite tattooed on my wrist and an ammonite on the other wrist. I have a coelacanth, plesiosaur, I have a bird, so I have an avian dinosaur. But really what interests me most are the things that are like that are very different than what is alive today. And I also know that, you know, no matter what I had chosen to study, I would throw myself into it. I would get excited about it. What is the most exciting part of your job? I guess I would have to say the field work. Like that's, it's, I mean, I I have to admit, first of all, like I'm not a field geologist. There's paleontologists who spend like three months a year doing field work. I, you know, that's not for me. (laughs) I usually, uh, you know, a month is where I cap out and then I'm like, I need a shower. (laughs) Um, But that being said, like I spend most of my time in front of my computer just analyzing specimens that are collected by other people and then writing Mm. papers on them. So most of the time I'm just like, banging away, you know, typing. And uh, so those couple weeks where I do get to go in the field, they're amazing. This might seem like an obvious question, but when you're going to do a dig in the field, how do you know where to look? So we need geologists, sedimentary geologists or, or structural geologists, really. Basically, they're geologists who have gone out and mapped all the rocks all over that are exposed on the surface of the earth. And there's three types of rocks. There's igneous rocks, uh, which are basically volcanic in origin. Uh, there's sedimentary rocks, which are basically formed by little bits of other rocks, so like sandstone or limestone. And then you have metamorphic rocks, which are sedimentary rocks or igneous rocks that have been metamorphosed means they've been changed in some way um, through heat or pressure. So Hmm. you only are going to find fossils in sedimentary rocks. So Hmm. you look at a map. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Why is it only in the sedimentary rocks? Basically, an animal that's alive has to get trapped in the rock as it's forming. And if you Hmm. uh, are, you know, like uh, igneous rocks that form on the surface would be like, you know, a basalt from like a lava flow. But if you fall into that, you're going to get incinerated. But if you have, (laughs) if you fall into, uh, you know, if you're, say, in a sand dune and a sand dune collapses on you and this sand dune over millions of years becomes sandstone, then Hmm. that fossil will be trapped in there. If the Mm. geochemical conditions are right. It's not, it's not guaranteed. So you want low energy sedimentary rocks, for example, like um, lake shales. So lake shales are, mm. the, are the best place to find really, really nicely preserved fossils. So most of the early Cretaceous and late Jurassic birds and feathered dinosaurs that I study come from lake deposits. And so a lake is basically being fed by streams, right? And the streams have energy, right? Is that water's flowing downhill. And so it's carrying fine sediment. But as soon as it hits the lake, a lake is basically still, right? So the water comes and it drops all the dirt it's been carrying and the dirt will slowly trickle down to the bottom. So if you are a bird and you fly over the lake and you die and you fall into the lake and you sink down down to the bottom, you're pretty much guaranteed to be buried. And if you're not buried, then you can't be fossilized. So some, you know, deposits, like for example, forests, you don't really have rock forming on the floor of a forest. So if you die on the floor of a forest, you're not going to get buried. So it, it, you have, it has to do with, um, you know, areas where 
dirt and sediment and rock is accumulating so that it can trap in it, in this accumulation, some of some traces or remnants of animals that were living at the time that the sediment was accumulating. You know, what was really cool about that was I was also thinking about how much the landscapes around us, how much they've changed Hmm. over the centuries, where there were once lakes, there are no longer, you know, or where there was a sand dune, there is no longer. And that's why you're finding the fossils there. Yeah, that's actually very true. I always think of things as being sort of man-made changes, like building Mm. of buildings or making of roads. But yeah, things just naturally, lakes dry up. Also, if I had known, you know, what kind of rock you found dinosaurs in, could have saved myself a lot of time digging in my backyard as a child. Could have maybe actually (laughs) studied some science instead of getting dirt under my hands. Did you ever find anything in your backyard? No. Nothing. I mean, I also, you know, you got a, what did did I have? A plastic spoon and a cup? How far was I going? (laughs) So, okay, let's talk a little bit more about your specific area of study. So you study avian dinosaurs and I read that you didn't always like birds. So how did you end up making your life's work avian dinosaurs? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I had, when I was an undergrad, I was studying mammals and I went to China to do field work. Yeah. I mean, like boring, like 10 million year old deposits. (laughs) But, uh, so, I mean, it was so fun, but, um, so I was out there and we were staying, it was inner Mongolia, but we were staying with some Mongolians. I was you know, fairly new to field work and, you know, new to like things like livestock because I, you know, I'm a city girl and they had all these, you know, chickens and, and sheep and this rooster just like started chasing me and then he hated me. So the whole time we were there, anytime this rooster saw me, he would like try to attack me. And ever since <laughs> no. then, I've been like, damn you birds. Uh, <laughs> but then I, um, I applied for grad school and because, you know, what people think is like, you can just study anything you want. And maybe that's true if you started really early. But for me, I, you know, I got into paleontology really late. So I applied like for a very diverse range of, um, of animal interests. Like I applied to work on echinoderms, like invertebrate animals. Cause I, you know, like mm. think, think, uh, think like sand dollars or that kind of thing. Ah. Uh, yeah. Which I think are really cool. Crinoids are just amazing animals. And then I, I also applied to work at USC. And if I worked at USC, I had two options of advisors. I could continue working on mammals with the person who had taken me to China, or I could work with like the famous Luis Chiappe and on dinosaurs. And specifically, he wanted someone to work on this one particular group of Mesozoic birds. So I you know, decided to go to USC. And then I decided to work with Luis Chiappe on Mesozoic birds because at the time it was just a practical choice. I thought, well, if I'm at least going to, you know, go down this very competitive career path, let me at least make it easier for myself by choosing something that is, you know, that I thought would help me get a job in the future. Basically, at this time in the early 2000s, there was really amazing Mesozoic birds coming out of China. And so I thought, you know, if I work in an area of the field where there's a lot of growth that's going to give me an opportunity to, you know, kind of contribute to the field significantly. So even if it started out as a practical choice, it seems like you did at some point fall in love with avian dinosaurs. Do you have a current favorite? I do. Uh, my favorite is a bird called Jehoornis. And it's, uh, it's, this, it's basically the only other bird besides Archaeopteryx that has an elongate reptilian tail. 
And it's mm. an early Cretaceous bird. It's from these jet hole deposits. It has a tail that's longer than that of Archaeopteryx, both in terms of like the number of vertebrae that make up the tail, but also in overall length. And that was just really bizarre because birds are supposed to be evolving a shorter tail, right? Because mm. all living <laughs> birds have this abbreviated tail. And it like, you know, at the time, they didn't really understand why. So they were like, this is evidence of mosaic evolution, just mean evolution of like just kind of doing all different crazy things. It's basically saying we don't understand it, right? And uh, yeah, basically what we realized when we had specimens that preserved soft tissue. So this is one thing that soft tissue is so critical to understanding all these fossils, but soft tissue is really rare. So anyways, uh, we get, you know, what does, uh, sorry to interrupt, but what does soft tissue tell you that you can't figure out elsewhere? Okay, well, take the example of a dinosaur called Microraptor that is also from these Jehol deposits. And the first Microraptor specimen did not preserve soft tissue. So they were like, oh, gee, that's a really small dromaeosaurid, you know, and that that was the punchline of the paper, like smallest dromaeosaurid dinosaur. And dromaeosauridae <laughs> is the group that includes like uh, Deinonychus or Velociraptor, right? And it's a group that's very closely related to birds. And then a couple of years later, they found another specimen that preserves soft tissue. And they're like, holy crap, this is is a flying dinosaur that flew with wings on its arms and its legs. And you would never have what? been able to tell that if there hadn't been feathers preserved on the arms and the legs. And then you're like, oh, you know, like, okay, that's, yeah. So soft tissue in particular has been really, really important to understanding the dinosaur bird transition and the early um, evolution of birds. So just to be totally clear, so a feather is considered soft tissue. A feather is essentially skin. Hmm. Oh, oh! In what way? About like that. Um, well, it's it's formed out of the same tissues. Um, you know, these alpha and beta carotenes, and uh, it's basically an outgrowth of the skin. Yeah, and just I mean, like hair too. It's like basically skin, hair, scales, feathers. It all groups into a type of tissue that we call integument. It's just like the outer coverings, mm. but it's also like you know the same like types of tissues are also what line the inside of say our stomach and that kind of thing. So it all mm-hmm. stems from the same uh, embryonic tissue and uh, you know, uh, scales, feathers, hair, they all have, they all start growing the same way because, you know, animals that have scales, have, uh, feathers, hair, all have one common ancestor. And this one common ancestor had these little things called placoids on its, you know, on the outside of its skin, which were little areas, I guess, where it becomes thicker and becomes more keratinized, which can be for protection or, you know, you know, so your skin isn't so soft, it protects you from the environment. And, uh, and then in, you know, as these different groups of animals branched out. You have now like the reptilian, you know, lineage, you have the mammalian lineage in the reptilian lineage. Now you have dinosaurs branching off, you know, um, these, these primitive features just evolved to become different structures in these different, uh, lineages. So, I mean, like the earliest feathers actually look like hair they're, but they're well, different because of the way that they form, like the fundamental way that they begin to develop was very different. But the earliest feathers were simple monofilaments, just like just a hair. I feel like you can hear me being uh, super polite where I'm like, hmm, oh, hmm, interesting. When instead in my head, I'm going, what? <laughs> I know that blew my mind. Let's pause the conversation and take a short break. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back. So as we're thinking about um, kind of how birds evolve from dinosaurs, I heard you say once in another interview that it's less a tree and it's more like a bush. Can you talk about that? Okay, so we know that like all dinosaurs have one common ancestor, right? And then they speciated into all, you know, they basically split into two lineages at first. And then one lineage split into, you know, like all your stegosaurs and your ceratopsians and all those things. But let's ignore that lineage right now because they're not related to to birds. Uh, birds are part of the other lineage, which is called the Saurischia. And Saurischia, again, splits into two lineages. And one is the Sauropoda, which is like all your giant long-necked dinosaurs, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other lineage is Theropoda. So this is your Deinonychus birds. And this makes sense because if you look at birds, they're bipedal organisms, right? Two legs, right? Bipedal. Bipedal, Just, like humans. So yes. if you're going to, you know, evolve, if you if you're going to evolve your forelimbs, your arms for another type of locomotion, like that can't happen if you're using them for locomotion already, right? If you're walking mm. on all four limbs, how are you going to evolve those uh, those front four limbs to be, you know, used in at least powered flight. It can be used in, for example, passive flight. For example, flying squirrels, they're actually gliding. It's not mm, powered mm. flight. They're not flapping in order to generate the power that they need for flight. They're basically using height and then they're just gliding. So it's it's passive flying, right? So, and they're, you know, they're quadrupeds. They're using all four of their limbs. So just to make sure that I'm following you. So modern birds evolved from bipedal dinosaurs because they were only using two their two legs to locomote then they had the other two limbs to to evolve into wings yes and, you know, the idea that birds are living dinosaurs uh, goes back to Thomas Huxley. He saw how similar they were. And he said, well, you know, I think birds descended from bipedal carnivorous dinosaurs. You know, and this is like the, the you know, late 1800s, this idea. But it was rejected for 100 years. Hmm. And then an American paleontologist named John Ostrom kind of uh, re you know, in, reinvigorated this hypothesis. And he, again, studied Archaeopteryx and he studied Deinonychus, which is this dromaeosaur dinosaur that I think a lot of people are very familiar with. And he brought, he said again, you know, based on my observations, birds must be living dinosaurs. But still, people are like, just, I don't know why people were so against this hypothesis, but they were. And they're like, no, 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 it's not possible. And and nobody had a, a better alternative hypothesis. They were like, some animal that we haven't found yet, you know, that's probably where birds evolved from. It's like, that's helpful, you know. Uh, but then when feathered dinosaurs were found in China, it kind of just provided the, like, this evidence that was, like, that you could not explain away else, you know, in some other way. Like, you know, like I said, feathers are something that we know are only an avian feature, and now you have undeniable evidence that feathers are actually features that birds inherited from dinosaurs, along with all these other skeletal similarities that people had already recognized. But people are like, no, 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 that's just coincidence. You know, just convergent evolution, you know, meaning that you evolve a similar shape, but independently. 
So now you have undeniable evidence birds are living dinosaurs. And the first feathered dinosaur found from these deposits just had what we call dino fuzz or proto feathers, which are basically primitive feathers that look like hair that I was talking mm-hmm. about. So just a little fuzzy dude um, because it's a, it's a theropod dinosaur that's not very, very closely related to birds. But as you move to, like within this theropod, theropod bush, you know, you have all these different lineages like, um, you know, diverging from each other and evolving with their own independent evolutionary histories. And these are all, they're evolving at the same time, you know? So it's, it's just really confusing and, and makes it difficult to understand how these things are related, especially when multiple lineages are evolving flight. So they're evolving similar features, like independent of each other. It just makes it really hard to figure out how they're related because normally we relate organisms based on shared morphology. We're like, hey, you guys all have this one feature. You probably inherited it from one common ancestor that had that feature. But Mm. if you have independent evolution of the same features like happening, you know, you have basically flight constrains an animal because it's it's very Mm. difficult to do and you have to deal with aerodynamics. So essentially, if you're flying, you'll evolve similar morphologies to other flying organisms, right? Mm. So if you have four different groups of dinosaurs all evolving flight, all evolving as, you know, they've split off from each other, but then they evolve flight and they're in parallel to each other, refining their flight apparatus through natural selection. So then evolving similar features. It's just, yeah, it's, it's really hard to understand how these organisms are, how they're related, which is why we still don't know which group of dinosaurs is most closely related to birds. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what I got from that. Yeah. And you tell me what you got from that. Sounds good. So several different types of dinosaurs way, way, way back when evolved to be able to fly. But only one of those types of dinosaurs survived. Mm-hmm. And that is the common ancestor of all modern birds. The question that Jingmei and paleontologists are trying to answer now is, what was that common dinosaur ancestor from which all modern birds evolved? Okay, that's what you got from it? Here's what I got from it. Birds are weird. It's amazing. <laughs> they are tiny dinosaurs. And when you look at them, you can absolutely see it. If you just Google a picture of a bird right now, I guarantee you, you will look at it and you will think, yes, that thing will both Pick my eyes out and also is definitely a tiny dinosaur. I I had a moment this week where I saw a hawk after we did this interview and I had that like, that is a dinosaur. (laughs) And then I was watching all these little birds sort of chase the hawk away. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's an avian dinosaur fight in front of me. (laughs) How important is it to keep an open mind in your work? Extremely important. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to do though, you know, because in order to, you know, everything that we're taught is basically teaching us to exclude certain ideas. Like that can't happen. That can't happen. That can't happen. This is how things happen. Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, also when you go look for fossils, you are taught, this is what you're looking for. This is your search image. So you're, I mean, because if you're just looking at the ground and looking at every rock on the ground, like you won't, you know, you'll, it'll take you like an hour to move like five feet, right? You know, mm-hmm. so you have to have a search image and you're scanning and you're scanning and you're moving, you know, I mean, you're moving slowly, but you, you're scanning and moving along, right? So yeah, like we, you know, we probably overlook so much stuff because we're not looking for it because we're taught it can't be there or because, you know, we're just not taught that that could be there even. So uh, there was this, um, 
as a beautiful specimen. It just has this halo of feathers all around it. You can even see um, the original patterning on the feathers. You can see little mm. spots that were at the tips of the feathers, and you can see little spangled pattern that was on some of the wing covers. Anyways, very, very beautiful specimen. And it preserves traces of the ovary very obviously in the abdominal cavity, right? So I was working, I, you know, I was just like, I just saw those ovarian traces and that's what I honed in on, right? And that's what I was focused on. And then somebody else uh, published a bird about the same age from Spain. And it was just a wing, so not nearly as nice as mine. <laughs> but, the, you know, but the wing <laughs> preserved uh, the patagia because birds also, I mean, birds primarily have a wing formed by feathers, but they augment the surface area of this wing also with skin flaps. So mm -hmm. if you're looking at a bird wing, the surface area of the wing that joint that goes from the shoulder to the wrist is is a skin flap. And it's covered mm -hmm. with feathers on the top, but it's but it is mm -hmm. a flap of skin and then you have these long feathers sticking off the hand that make the majority of the surface area. But birds also have skin flaps, that's my point. Anyways, <laughs> and um and so this this colleague was describing the Spanish early Cretaceous bird and he was describing the skin. And then all of a sudden I looked at my specimen, which I had been working on for like a year. And I'm like, well, there's the same skin is preserved in my specimen mm. too. And I just had not seen it because I wasn't looking for it, you know? So, mm. uh, yeah, I think in the next 20 years, you know, in addition to new fossils, people will also look back at fossils we've already found and be like, hey, there's actually soft tissue there. And we just didn't see it. When you find a fossil and you in the field and you bring it back, it's covered in dirt. You have to clean the dirt away. And we've probably just been blasting through soft tissues because we're just like, mm. gotta get at that bone, you know? So I think in the next 20 years or like, I mean, it's already begun. We're going to see a soft tissue, a fossilized soft tissue revolution where people are going to start seeing these things, start studying them more. And, and just like really just, I'm sure we're going to find such incredible new information about extinct organisms based on, on these tissues. So to wrap up, if you could kind of take yourself back in time and live uh, at any particular area you wanted when dinosaurs were alive, what would you love to see? Like, what would you love to see in person? I would love to see pterosaurs flying. In particular, mm. I would love to see mm. Quetzalcoatlus, which is the largest flying animal of all time. Uh, and also largest flying reptile. But uh, the you know, these pterosaurs that I was mentioning, these, these you know, animals that there's just nothing like them alive today. That's what I would really love to see. Also, yeah, I mean, to see plesiosaurs and mosasaurs, that would also be super amazing. And these marine reptiles, also ichthyosaurs, they're pretty cool. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would love to see these animals that are just... Yeah, I mean, I guess most people are probably like, oh, I want to see T-Rex or something. And I do not, like, uh, probably, <laughs> I would probably die. Like, um, But yeah, I would love to see a pterosaur to see how they flew because we don't know, you know, and just like, mm -hmm. you know, be like, oh, that's how they're doing it. <laughs> or like, you know, how they were walking. Like, I mean, we have yeah. hypotheses based on trackways, but I mean, like trackways, you know, like imagine, you know, like the footprints that you leave on like a muddy surface and then that getting fossilized is really difficult to interpret. So, um, yeah, you know, who knows? So, yeah, I, I would love to see pterosaurs. That's my my dream. Thank you so much for answering our questions today. This was so awesome. Thank you so much for having me. OK, let's take one last break. Then we've got a story about a scientist who discovers a secret at the center of the Earth. And we're 
back. It's story time. Story time. Do you want to introduce our special guest? Oh, yes. We have this week a dear, dear friend, former colleague, uh, and personal hero. Special guest, why don't you say your name? Ken Jung. Dr. Yay! Ken! <laughs> Thank you both for having me. Really appreciate it. This is payback for the time you just randomly called me and turned out I was recording live on your podcast without knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> What? What? Well, what happened was Joel McHale and I, and I uh, may I take this time on your podcast to apologize. We just decided out of the blue to call you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just to test out something. I, for, I forgot what it was. Obviously very memorable. <laughs> uh, and she never answered her phone again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no. We only, we, only, uh, we only WhatsApp now. We don't even yeah. text. So no, we only WhatsApp. Did you guys meet working on Community, or did you know each other before? Uh, no, we met on the show. I, yeah. I remember vividly, it was the second episode of um, of the series of Community, and I was excited because um, it was the first time I had been a series regular in anything, and and um, and everyone in the cast was excited because their pilot, you know, is one of the most anticipated shows. Uh, that season. So there was a, I just remember everyone being giddy. At least that's how I, that's how I remember it. We're we're all just, um, just happy to be working and happy to be a series regular on anything and then happy to be, and then much less be on a show like Community, which it it was really an embarrassment of riches looking back. And, and, um, and it's probably why, you know, you know, the cast is still close to this day and, and we're all, you know, we all are like uh, really good friends. And yeah. it's just, uh, it's just kept up, you know, uh, just kept up. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I don't think I've had this kind of relationship with, you know, castmates on, uh, you know, you know, for going on for this long a period yes. of time. And it's just, uh, whenever we talk, it's just like nothing is, it's almost just like you just pick up from where you left off. It It could be a day, a month, a year, just the conversation just still just as easy. Well, I was saying also that we all just ask you for medical advice all the time, but no one ever like <laughs> actually asks you any question about your medical career. You know, I, I know very little about your time as a doctor. Is there was there something that inspired you to go into medicine? Oh, yeah. My parents. I think they, they, they inspired me. They forced me. Um, no, they. Um, it really. My my dad. Um, my father is a retired economics professor, um, and my mother is a business owner. So, growing up as a kid, um, we were very academically based, and it was not only their expectation of me to go into a career of academics and science, it was what I wanted to do. It's what I, that I, that was my path. And, and, you know, I I was very content with that, to be honest. And so I was always on the pre-med path. I, I skipped a grade. I don't think I've even told you that, Gillian. I no, skipped a grade I'm when I was so a kid. No, I'm learning so much right now. Yeah, I know. In 11, <laughs> 11 years of friendship, years yeah. <laughs> I've never told you anything substantial. No. Um, um, no, I skipped a grade when I was uh, in second grade. So I graduated high school when I was 16. Wow. And then um, in college, 
my sophomore year, I decided to just take an intro to acting class and, and I just, you know, I was hooked and, and I loved it. And I, I, you know, I, I figured I'd be one of those professionals like a doctor or so-and-so that, oh, he turned out he can play piano or do stand, or maybe he's funny or maybe do a play. I thought I'd be one of those, you know, I thought I'd be like, that would be kind of um, who I would be in life. But it all, what goes around comes around. If you're really passionate about what you do, if you keep your eye on it, then you eventually find your way. And I think, you know, and that's what I have two daughters. They're 13 fraternal twins. And, and, and my wife, Tran, that who Gillian also knows is a mm-hmm. physician who really encouraged me actually to um, uh, really to pursue acting. She, it, 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 what, what's really weird is that had I been single, I, I, I would not have, I'm too conservative in thought um, and too pragmatic to make a big risk and, and pursue the arts full time. Really? So it really took, yeah, it, I would never have done it. It really is because of Tran, um, she encouraged me to, to quit my job. And ironically, it was, uh, it was knocked up. I had shot that mm-hmm. during my um, vacation, uh, vacation week. Um, I, I was a day player on that movie. I think worked on it for three or four days. And after filming it, I just started getting depressed at work. But I, I felt like, well, you know, I'm, I'm used to misery. I'll just have this great <laughs> moment. And then and then just go back to my life and just resent myself. And Tran was like, you know, your life doesn't have to be that way, man. <laughs> just like you can, you know, and we just gotten married too. And she was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have you blame me for whatever you perceive yourself. You know, she, yeah. she was like, she was like, I'm not, I'm not going to stand in your way of your ha- success or failure happening. It, it, it's not going to, it's not going to be that kind of marriage or that kind of life. And it just was so liberating and, so literally a couple of weeks later, I quit my job and I'm not that kind of guy to do that. And I've never, I honestly, I've never looked back since. And that was about 15 years ago. I, um, I really loved watching Dr. Ken and I love that it was a show set at a practice as opposed to a hospital, which I, I was like, oh, I relate to this so much. That's like watching my sister. That's awesome. That means more to me than you'll ever know, because, um, I, I created that show and, and, and Gillian saw it firsthand. I, I, I wrote that show. I wrote on that show and it was really built off of my life. All those memories of, of me as a doctor at Kaiser are more vivid than ever because th- there's just so much disinformation out there. Um, I think right now the world we live in uh, is, is a, it's a reminder of, you know, um, the importance of being informed, being educated, and always moving forward in thought and evolving in thought. And so kudos to you both for, for doing this. And, you know, so it's really inspiring. Thanks, Ken. Should we read the story? We can inform yeah. people about someone. I'm tired of reading your copy. I had to read this verbatim. <laughs> and you wouldn't let me ad lib, so. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story about a researcher named Inga Lehman and the secrets at the center of the earth. Not to make you paranoid, but we've never really explored what's going on down there. We've sent satellites and rovers to planets billions of miles away, but we've never gotten close to seeing what's beneath the surface of our own world. Through the millennia and across cultures, we've wondered, what's below our feet? Is the world flat so there's not much down there? 
Are there deep pits with creatures like fire-breathing dragons? Is it hell? I mean, we've got a lot of theories. Some stick, some don't. But we're starting to build up on the ideas that have evidence. So, far as we know, the ancient Greeks are the first to propose the idea that the world is round. And then in 1700, Sir Isaac Newton theorizes that the Earth has layers. So those two basic principles give some shape to the structure and composition of our planet, even if we can't see what's below the surface ourselves. Enga Lehman makes her debut into the world in 1888. She's born in Denmark and grows up into a pretty smart kid. But at the time, systemic sexism is very much alive and well. Danish women couldn't even vote. But Enga, fortunately, attends a progressive co-ed school where they make an effort to treat girls and boys as intellectual equals. They're given the same curriculum, which is quite unconventional at the time. Enga excels from there, gets accepted into a top university in Denmark, then Cambridge. She studies mathematics, chemistry, and physics. In 1925, she accepts an assistant position to a professor. He's looking to create new research stations in Denmark and Greenland. Sounds like an exciting thing to be a part of. I don't blame her for signing up for that. Sign me up. But this turns her attention to seismology, the scientific study of earthquakes and seismic waves. Those are waves of energy that travel through the Earth's layers. Fortunately, there's some fairly recent advancements in tools for the field. The modern seismograph had been invented shortly before Enga was born. That's a device that we put into the Earth to measure seismic waves. So as part of her position, Enga and other assistants help set up seismological observatories. In 1928, she receives the equivalent of a master's degree in geodesy, a branch of math that focuses on measuring the Earth. She also gets a new gig. She becomes chief of the seismological department at a Danish research institute. So let's go over what we thought we knew about the entrails of our planet at this point in history. If you imagine a model of the Earth, it's basically a ball. But if you cut that ball in half with, I don't know, some really sharp scissors, inside, they thought you'd see three layers made up of differing compounds. The first layer is an outer crust. We're walking on that. The outer crust is miles and miles deep. Then below that layer, you have the mantle. It's rocky and made up of minerals. It's the thickest layer of the Earth, probably more than a thousand miles deep. Then, below that, at the time, they believed our planet had a single central core made up of a hot, dense, metallic liquid, and I mean hot. As you go deeper into the Earth, it gets progressively warmer. So at the center of the Earth, it is probably like 9,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, of course, we thought anything that far down would be melty and gooey. Enga's research proves that's not actually the case. In 1929, an earthquake hit New Zealand. It's a big one, felt throughout the country. The quake is so strong that as Inga was studying the seismic waves, she finds evidence deep within the Earth. She notices that certain waves that should have been deflected by the Earth's core were not. The study of seismic waves is kind of technical, but the gist of it is that there's a wave pattern that suggests the most inner part of the Earth is actually pretty solid. She has a theory. We can look at the Earth's core as having two components, a liquid outer core and a mostly solid inner core. Her findings are published in a 1936 paper, and the hypothesis receives more support in 1970 as increasingly advanced tech comes to the same conclusion. 
Imagine that at the heart of our world is a hard, dense center. Anga goes on to do more groundbreaking research. <laughs> groundbreaking, see what I did there? But now we generally look at the Earth as having four layers because of her work. The crust, the mantle, the outer core, and the inner core. I mean, we still can't ever experience what's at the center of our world. It's way too hot. But at least we can keep adding to our stories about the depths beneath our feet. Now we can imagine the Earth's center. It's almost the size of the moon. A place as hot as the surface of the sun. No dragons. Probably no dragons. Right, probably. If you want to learn more about the layers of the Earth, the BBC has an interactive website called Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's totally worth Googling. That was wonderful. Um, Gillian, I have some notes. Um, I don't mean to give you a line read. No, I, I'd love to hear it. Um, maybe you just want to have fun with that. You know, if you want to learn more about the layers oh, of the okay. Earth. okay. Maybe because there's a BBC sure. predicate coming oh, up. Oh, I, you know just, what? That actually makes you want know, to You want to have a go I, at it? You take yeah, that line. Yeah, yeah, in it, yeah. If you want to learn more about the layers of the Earth, the mm -hmm. BBC has an interactive website, isn't it, called Journey to the Center of the Earth. It's totally worth Googling, isn't it? Great. If you just add, if you add like an in it. Then it just, yeah. It's and a that's what our sponsors have been looking for. So thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. Oh, thank no you. problem. We needed no that. Problem. <laughs> <laughs> I loved getting to read that with my good friend, Ken. That was honestly so cool for me to be part of. I was like, how am I here? <laughs> Ooh, Tamika had a great question for us. Yes. Um, if you could live in a natural history museum, in which area would you be most excited to unroll your sleeping bag and call home? Honestly, the planetarium. Oh. I mean, assuming there's a planetarium there, but I just, I love it so much. That makes it seem like I just want to sleep there, which I do. But also, I just love stars and astronomy. I think it would be so cool. What about you? Oh, you just took me back, though, to, to some childhood memories of being in a planetarium. That was... <laughs> That was really nice. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, hmm. I think maybe I'd want to sleep in Dinosaur Hall at the Ooh. Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Yes, they have a stegosaurus there. Maybe I could uh, camp out for the night right by the stegosaurus. Ooh, little little steg sleepover. <laughs> Did you have a name for the stegosaurus? Ooh, no, but there's a, a diplodocus that I guess they call Dippy. Sure. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's call let's call Stegosaurus Lisa. Lisa. Oh, that makes me so happy. I don't know why. It really does. You know what? I got to film something um, on what was the the Jim Henson Studios here in L.A. Oh, yeah. And they still have one of those dino like the big puppets from the show Dinosaurs there. Wow. That's yes. so cool. Yeah, I will send you the picture. That's so cool. I still remember the rap that the baby did. The baby dinosaur. I think we have to hear it. No. <laughs> okay, this show has been brought to you by... <laughs> Okay, time to read some reviews. Here's one from Call Us the Elementals. Okay, wish granted. Um, fun and interesting show. Thanks for taking the time to do it. Thank you. All right, and here's another one from The Frito. 
You will love it when you listen to it. It's informative, entertaining, fascinating, and easy to understand. It's the perfect mix of smarty pants and laughy face. Share with everyone who breathes. Thank you so much. (laughs) This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.